Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. I want to start this episode by telling you a little bit about Jerry. Here's his mom, Maria. When he was little, he was mommy's little helper. Of course, his brother and sister used to say he was brown-nosing, but it worked because he usually could talk me into anything. He was the one that would help me unload the dishwasher, make the beds, you know, kind of try to entertain his sister, who was four years younger. As he got older, when he'd come home to visit, um, I remember we'd go downstairs, and I'd go back upstairs, and he would have made my bed for me just so I wouldn't have to do it. And there's, I think, very few kids that would show that kind of thoughtfulness. But that was Jerry. We know we can't get Jerry back. We know that our child is gone. But for me and, I, and for Fred, we know he, he's proud of us. We know that he, lo- he sees us and he knows we love him so much still that we're like he was, the kind of kind and generous and thoughtful person that he was. We're trying to do the same. And when you also hear statistics like 70% of marriages who lose a child, especially in this way, don't make it two years. I'm Joe Piazza. This is Committed. My producer Ramsey and I talked a lot about this episode. Now, we talk a lot about every episode, but this one in particular was hard. It turns out that when we were growing up, both our moms used to say the same thing to us. They'd tell us that the hardest thing a parent could ever go through is losing a child. And I don't think Ramsey or I fully understood what that meant until we had kids of our own. Just a warning. This is a story about guns and gun violence and how that violence destroys the lives of those who are left behind. But it's also the story of a marriage, of a couple forced to go through the worst possible thing and then rely on one another in ways most of us can't ever even imagine. 
This coming December, Maria and Fred Wright will celebrate their 40th wedding anniversary. When they met four decades ago, Maria was going to an all-girls boarding school in Dallas, and Fred was in college at Texas A&M. Fred's sister went to school with Maria. She's the one who introduced them. They started dating about a year later. It was about three hours away. On Friday, I usually try to get no classes, so, so I was done by Thursday, and I would take off on Thursday and go to Dallas to see her while uh, we were dating. And then, you know, we would talk on the phone on a daily basis, and, and we would talk a lot. We got married uh, very young. We were both, uh, uh, I was 21, she was 18, and uh, I had just graduated from Texas A&M. Well, he didn't exactly propose. He just informed me. <laughs> and got to a point where I said, you know what, we, we just should get married. <laughs> you know, this is kind of silly, just talking on the phone. We, you know, we should get married. It was not much of a proposal, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed because I just could see my parents' face. <laughs> I was still in high school and, you know, he was uh, just about to finish college and I could just see what their reaction was going to be. But we made our decision to get married and that was kind of it. <laughs> So these really romantic, uh, romantic proposals, that was not us. You know, the, our romance uh, started um, before that, I, I would say. And, and of course, it's lasted for 40 years. We ended up getting married on a Wednesday night in a gym because the church was getting remodeled. And because of it, I mean, it really was an extremely simple wedding. We didn't have a band. We didn't have a DJ. Everything turned, you know, because everything had to be scrapped and changed and done over. And in the end, though, it was a great wedding. And more, like I tell every bride-to-be, I said, but the wedding's one night. It's the marriage that counts. Fred and Maria waited a little while to have kids. And I love what Maria said about that wait. I always make the joke that we have a successful marriage because we finished raising each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it's true. You know, we were very young. We were very stupid. You know, we didn't know any better, but it, it, that's, that's the way it works, you know, and we're, we're still here. We're still married. So there's something to say about getting married young. <laughs> so it was five years before they had their first baby, a little boy named Joe. Soon afterwards, they had two more kids, and then Jerry came along. The family settled in Miami. They liked it a lot. It's close to the beach and close to both Maria and Fred's parents, so the kids got to spend a ton of time with their grandparents. Jerry was just a little kid when Hurricane Andrew hit Miami in 1992. Good morning. We're live in the Weather Channel Forecast Center. It's August 24th, 1992. History in the making as Hurricane Andrew is now making landfall in South Florida. We're talking about the Miami area. Let me show you the latest radar out of here. Jerry was uh, the mayor of the block. Um, he would go around every house and, and find out uh, who needed what and who had what. He connected the, the neighbors with, with uh, the other neighbors. So he'd get up in the morning and the first thing he'd do is he'd go around and check on everybody, you know, like who had water, who needed had ice, who was going to make a run and get like orders so he could bring stuff for the rest of the neighbors. And if somebody was going to be having a barbecue because their meat was about to get ruined, he'd let everybody else know, okay, everybody were eating at so-and-so's house because they're barbecuing everything in the refrigerator today. Everybody would always remember that about the hurricane, Jerry checking and taking care of everybody. He was, he was that kind of kid. He was a kid that would socialize with everybody. He had friends 
everywhere. You wouldn't believe how many, how many friends. He was, he was just that kind of guy. Jerry was always this really sweet kid, but like a lot of sweet kids, he turned into kind of a pain in the ass when he was a teenager. And that's why Maria and Fred sent him to military school for the summer when he was 14. And I remember telling him, if I don't see a change when you get back, that's where you're going to go <laughs> for the rest of high school. And he came back a lot taller, a lot skinnier, and with a lot better attitude. <laughs> but he was, I mean, he just had that kind of personality that was very easygoing. So usually you'd be scolding him. You'd, he'd do something that would get you really mad at him, but he'd have this little lopsided grin and he'd look at you and it was really hard to stay mad at him because he wouldn't really answer you back. He would just kind of like listen to you and then try to make a joke out of it. And so it was really hard to be strict with him because he could talk you into anything. After that summer, Jerry grew out of his teenage rebellion and suddenly he was a grown man. He ended up being about Fred's height, maybe just a little bit taller. He had dark hair, light skin. He wore glasses. I think he was nice looking, but of course I was his mother. <laughs> he, like I said, had a grin that was kind of goofy and he, he hated to smile in photos because he thought he had a goofy grin. But I loved his smile. Yeah, we all did. It felt natural for Jerry to gravitate toward the hospitality industry. He liked taking care of people. He was always the perfect host. He ended up studying hospitality management at Florida International University. When he graduated, he told me, half this diploma is yours, Mom. I was so proud of him. Fred was so proud of him. We were, yeah. because, you know, he might not have been summa cum laude anything, but the effort that he put in to get through school was incredible, and we were very proud of him. Yeah. He moved to Orlando because hospitality management, that's kind of the mecca for that kind of job, and he worked for Disney. In fact, he had just gotten his first promotion on June 10th. June 10th. On June 11th, everything changed. We're going to take a quick break here. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter, Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Uh, 
on Friday, I had spoken to him because we, he had, he'd told me, he said, I haven't seen you guys in four weeks. It's time for me to come home. And I, I said, well, when, when were you thinking? He said, well, I could try and see if I can switch my shift tomorrow. And I said, but we have a golf tournament tomorrow. The following weekend is Father's Day. And he said, oh, that's right. Father's Day is the following weekend. Then I'll come next weekend so I can be there with Dad for Father's Day. And so we always said love you when we spoke. They ended that call with their I love yous. Maria thinks about those I love yous a lot now. Jerry worked late the night of June 11th. After he finished his shift, he went out with his friends to this nightclub called Pulse. Pulse was a pretty well-known gay club in Orlando. It was on Orange Avenue, this gray building, a little bit of neon, palm trees out front. It was almost the end of the night by the time Jerry got there, close to 2 a.m. He ended up finding a parking space right by the front door, and when he walked in, it was already almost last call. Good morning, I'm Dara Brown. There's breaking news at this hour from Orlando where there are reports of a shooting at a nightclub in that city. NBC's Sarah Dalloff is on the phone near the scene. And Sarah, good morning to you. What are you seeing in Orlando? Uh, good morning. You know, this is a huge, massive scene. It just keeps getting bigger. I, we're here at the... Uh, Maria and Fred woke up to news of the shooting, but they had no way of knowing that Jerry was at the club. As far as they knew, he'd worked late, gotten home late, and gone to bed. I got up early because um, I usually play golf on Saturday mornings um, very, very early. So I was up and I heard on the news that there had been a shooting in Orlando. But because, precisely because we had spoken the night before and he had said that, uh, that he was working late, I wasn't concerned at all. I went on to play golf and we had absolutely no idea that he had been at the club. As soon as Maria heard about the shooting, she texted Jerry. Because I didn't want to call him because I figured he might be sleeping late. And so I texted him, what's going on in Orlando? I kind of kept trying to call him. And my daughter, who was living in Atlanta, started, you know, called me. And I was like, have you talked to him? No. So I started getting a little concerned. When, and so I called Fred, and, but he was heading home right at that minute. As I finished my round... My, uh, my other son, Joe, called me and he said, Dad, I think Jerry was at the club. And I said, no, that can't be. It's impossible. He said he was going to work late. He said, yeah, I think he was there. Jerry's roommates had called. He'd never made it back to the house the night before. And so at that moment, I dropped everything. We flew up to Orlando immediately and we went to the hospital. There was a, a family reunification center in the hotel. Maria stayed there with uh, with Joe, and I went to the hospital to see if he was in the in the hospital right there. I started asking around, and they had a list of people that were in the hospital, and they told me he wasn't in that list. We tried calling every hospital they had taken the injured to, and we could, just couldn't find them anywhere. And it was such surreal place to be because you were looking at everybody and afraid to talk in anybody and everybody looked at each other's eyes and everybody had this kind of guilty look like because everyone was praying, let mine be okay. And then they said they were going to give us a briefing and a doctor got on a table and said he was going to read out the names of the people who were in hospitals. And he starts reading names 
And I find myself thinking of the irony that I was praying so hard that my son be terribly injured, be so badly injured he couldn't have called me. And that's what I was praying for because the alternative was worse. As they read every name, Maria kept telling herself that Jerry would be the last. This made sense. They were going in alphabetical order. Their last name began with a W. Jerry would be on the list. She just had to wait. And of course, they got to the last name and they didn't mention it. And then there was a silence. And then somebody said, what about the rest? Does that mean they're dead? Does that mean they're lying there? And and pandemonium broke up. I mean, people were screaming. Ladies were fainting. I mean, it wasn't just the pain I was feeling. It was the pain everybody else was feeling. It's so hard to describe how absolutely terrible that was. Because it wasn't just my agony. It was like a, an exponential agony. The medical examiner told the rights that they needed something to try to identify Jerry by. By that point, the FBI had taken over the investigation and they weren't releasing any of the bodies. They just left the bodies in the club. And my son at that point, my six-foot boy, looked at me and I said, baby, I think Jerry's gone. And he screamed, no, it can't be, and just collapsed on the floor. And I'm like, okay, I'm five foot. How am I going to do this? We went to a hotel that we found uh, nearby, and, um, and we just couldn't, you know, you can imagine what kind of a night we had. We had no idea still at that point whether he was dead or alive. They returned at 11 the next morning. The crowd had thinned a little, but not much. Some had recovered loved ones, and some people hadn't. No one talked to one another. There were still so many families to tell bad news to that the officials would bring people into the stairwells just so they'd have some privacy during those conversations. I finally approached a police woman and I said, please, I just want to know what's happened to my son. We've been here since 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon. We need to know. I remember they escorted us out of the building and we went around the building. And for a moment, my heart just went, well, maybe they found him. And maybe they're taking us to him. And, and I remember for, you know, feeling that hope. And then I saw us turn the corner and they were bringing to us to one of those kind of like temporary buildings. Like the temporary school classes. And my heart sunk because I knew that they were going to tell us something we didn't want to hear. And the way they told us was, was pretty horrific, too. Thinking back, you know, we can understand they were overwhelmed and everything else, but uh, it was, they put us in the room and uh, there was a police officer. There was a chaplain. There was a chaplain there and um, somebody, some other gentleman. And the police officer said, well, you know, there was a shooting last night. Um, and um, a lot of people were killed. A lot of people didn't make it out. A lot, a lot of people didn't make it out. Your son was one of them. And then 
she got up and left. I mean, that was how we got informed that our son was, had been killed in, in Pulse. We hugged each other really tight and cried. The chaplain said, is there anything you need, anything you want to know? And I said, yes, when am I seeing my son? And they said, well, there's an FBI briefing right now. So we are marched within minutes of being told our son was dead. We're taken into this room with about 200 people to hear different people in the FBI and in the mayor's office talking about logistics when our entire world had just been turned upside down. And my older son had gone to get my daughter at the airport because she flew in from Atlanta. And they came into this room, and I looked over at my children, and all I could do was shake my head. And that's how I told my children their brother was dead. I think any time a child dies for a parent, it's the worst thing that can happen. To lose a child suddenly adds a layer to that. To lose a child to violence adds another layer. When you lose your child to violence with 48 other people at the same time, there's a layer of horror that's really hard to explain. Because you're not just feeling yours, you're feeling everyone's. And it's Horrible. It's time for a quick break. Be right back. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. There are more than a, a list of names. There are people who loved and were loved. There are people with families and friends and dreams. And the truth is we don't know much about some of them. We want you to hear their names and a little bit about who they were. Gerald Arthur Wright worked at Disney World. The coworker says he was wonderful with the guests. He was always smiling. He was 31. Leroy Valentin Fernandez worked. How did the two of you lean on each other as you were going through this? The way we've always leaned on each other. The way we've always been there for the other one. I mean, we, you know, I was strong for him, he was strong for me. And we just held each other tight. 
We've always been supportive of each other through every facet of our marriage. We, we were always supportive. And so it was, it was the same here. It was, we just needed to, to hold each other and, and we, we helped each other grieve. We gave each other permission to cry, to scream, to express whatever we needed to express. Um, we were honest with each other. At one point, Fred started trying to be Mr. Strong Guy, and I said, you cut that out. You're hurting as much as I am. If we're going to get through this, we need to both be weak and both be strong. And he did. He let himself cry and sob and scream too. I think that was a big part of it, giving each other permission to feel all the feels. And there's no way to explain this. There's no way to answer why. So we just didn't even ask. And even, you know, now it's been uh, over two years now and we still, you know, the feelings come to you even if you're not talking about a specific thing. And all of a sudden it hits you and, and you don't know why it hits you, but it just hits you. And people do, do not understand, you know, uh, it, it could be a silly thing that you're saying, but you still... You still hit you and, and still cry uncontrollably many times. How has your marriage changed since Jerry was murdered? It's gotten closer. I think it's gotten closer. Yeah. I mean, we've been lucky, I guess. Uh, but, uh, but for us, you know, we, we are very much super, super close to each other. And, and we're also supporting each other. And, and I've seen in some other couples that what happens is that uh, one might get involved in, in things like we have, you know, like uh, reducing gun violence in America. And, but the other spouse would not do anything and, and would be completely oblivious to it. And that kind of separates them. In our case, we both went in this with head and heart and we said we are going to to do this and we're going to end gun violence in this country. And, um, you know, we work together on this and that has, I guess, has also helped us to stay together. We felt from the beginning that we had to be the voice Jerry didn't have anymore. And we had to honor him somehow and not let him be forgotten. So for us, it's become a, a way of honoring our child trying to make the world a little better for our other children and for our grandchild. We have been very lucky in that we've been able to kind of hold each other's hand throughout this journey. And we've been fairly close. I mean, sometimes I'm way more emotional than he is. Sometimes he's way more emotional than I am. But there's also the fact that no one else gets this the same way I do for him, and no one else gets this the way he does for me. So many times we feel like we're in an island and, and we're the only ones there. I mean, we're surrounded by family who loves us. We're surrounded by friends who love us. But they don't get it. <laughs> they don't get it. We do. And it's a, it's a different, totally different world that we live in. It's not only the grief, but it's, it's that void that is there for us. 
and our friends, our family, they cannot get it. They do and they don't. You know, they yeah, they say uh, they, they they feel for us and all this, but they they just don't get it. It's 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 something that, like Maria said, no nobody wants to be in this club. In this situation, your whole world has shifted. Nothing that you held to be true before works. So you almost feel like an alien among quote-unquote normal people. Have your politics changed at all since the shooting? That's a good question because you're talking to two registered Republicans. Um, you know, we, we are registered Republicans and we still are, but we've, we've become one-issue voters. It's how do we reduce gun violence? How do we keep other people, other families from going through what we did? It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. And like we tell everybody, when the, the shooter was shooting my son, he didn't ask whether you were a Democrat or a Republican. He just shot whoever was there. We keep telling this is a not a partisan issue. Children are dying on both sides of the aisle. Loved ones are being taken away from families of every kind. In Florida, we are promoting as, as many of the gun sense candidates as we can. Be them Democrats, being Republican, we, we, don't, we don't really care. Uh, uh, you know, the unfortunate thing for us Republicans is that most of the gun sense candidates are Democrats. So we ha- we're in a bind in that sense, but we're also reaching out and talking to Republican candidates because one of the roles that we see ourselves as is we can kind of reach across and build a bridge and say, look, these are not crazy liberals wanting to take your guns. We're defending the Second Amendment, but it, with, with those rights come responsibilities, and that's all that we are all about. And we know we can't get Jerry back. We know that our child is gone. But for me and for Fred, we know he, he's proud of us because if we can get some of these changes, lives will be saved. And that is our motivation. You both mentioned that there are such dark days. Do you two have those days on the same days, or does it happen to you on different days? And when it happens, what are some of the tools that you've developed to try to support the other one? Since long before this, I used to tease Fred, we can both be crazy, but just not at the same time. And it kind of continues to work that way. If one of us is having a really down day, then the other one will try and bring the other one up. They don't always coincide. Sometimes I'll be having a really dark day and Fred will be even keel. Other times he'll be the other way around. Sometimes we'll both be really down. I remember one weekend, I don't think we took a shower for two days. And then it was a long weekend and we both looked at each other and said, okay, tomorrow we are going out. We are going somewhere. I don't care where, but we are getting out of this house. And we went, I remember, to the art museum and had lunch by the bay just because it was nature always helps. We go on long walks sometimes when we're feeling in that dark place. We'll go walk. And, and we inherited Jerry's dog. So taking him for a walk, maybe taking him to the park where he can go 
without a leash and watch him enjoy himself so much. Let, let me tell you one thing that I found that helps us is we never, ever scold each other about being sad or being down. And we just basically let ourselves be there. We just, you know, support each other. But but if Maria wants to just stay in bed the, the whole day, that's fine. I don't I don't tell her, well, you know, come on, let's get up, you know, that 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 kind of thing. I never do because I understand where she is. It's 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 a dark place. And she'll get out of it. I know that she gets out of it. Same thing with me. When I when I'm feeling really down in the day, uh, she knows I, I will get out of it. There's also another aspect to that, which is we also let each other have fun and make jokes and be silly and have joy because we're still alive and that's part of it too. And so we don't go the other way either. You know, if they're having a moment of sheer joy or if they're enjoying themselves, I mean, that's part of life too. And we will, you know, we will be crying and and grieving for our son till we see him again on the other side. But in the meantime, we have a life, we have each other, we have our children We have a lovely little grandson who's called Jerry. Fred and Maria's son was murdered in Pulse nightclub on June 12th. They weren't informed about it until the following Monday, and they didn't get to see his body until Tuesday. The funeral was the following Friday. That Monday, the following Monday after the funeral, my daughter found out she was pregnant. And... When she found out, she called me upstairs and showed me the pregnancy test. And she said, Mom, this baby's going to be called Jerry, whether it's a boy or a girl. My brother sent this to me to help me hang on. And it turned out to be a boy, so. (laughs) And uh, he is, he really was like a lifesaver for all of us because He gave us something to look forward to through some of the darkest and worst moments right at the beginning. He's an incredible joy for us. You know, he's he's a very, very cheerful kid. He's always laughing, always smiling. He's very close to both of us, very, very close. You know, when he sees us, he just, you know, jumps in in joy and and, and races towards us. So it's something that we we truly enjoy. And treasure. And And treasure, yeah. this is a thing. We, we really do try to be grateful for our blessings. You two, you're about to celebrate your 40th wedding anniversary, right? That is correct. It's going to be this December. 40 years together. What will you do? It's difficult. It's difficult for us to celebrate anything. You know, our, our, my birthday, I did not want to celebrate my birthday at all. You know, what? I, a lot of times you don't feel like celebrating. So we just don't know. It's at those kinds of moments, those special moments, where the absence really, really, that empty chair is really felt. So I think I don't want to pressure us to try and plan any kind of big party or anything when what we might feel like doing is just crying and holding each other. I remember, I think it was the night we came back We live in Miami, and we had rushed to Orlando, and we didn't come back until Wednesday of that week to find our house full of relatives. We had, I think, about 60 people here. 
And there was a moment that we had, we both had kind of escaped to our room to get a moment of quiet. And I remember telling Fred, as horrible and as difficult as this is, if I was going to have to go through this, I'm so glad I'm going through this with you. Maria saved a lot of Jerry's voicemails. She wishes she had more, but he was a texter, not a caller. Maria has actually kept a book of all of their texts together. She only has about six little voice notes left. Most of them just say, hey, call me, or I'm waiting for you down in the lobby. She tries not to listen to them very often because when she does, it just puts her down and she can't do much of anything for a couple of days. Here's one of her favorites. Ah, uh, very nice, very nice. Sounds good. Well, enjoy your day, and I'll call you later. Okie dokie. Have a good one. This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza. In memory of Jerry Wright, with special thanks to Maria and Fred Wright, as well as Every Town for Gun Safety. It was produced and edited by Ramsey Yunt and Tyler Klang with mixing by Tristan McNeil. The executive producers are Joe Piazza, Mangesha Ticketer, and Will Pearson. Theme song and music by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. You can grab a copy of Joe's new book, Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Committed with Joe Piazza has been a production of the House Stuff Works family, produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty-turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book.